Well, Tina Turner famously asked the question in her 1980s pop hit, what's love got to do, got to do with it? Now, in order to talk about what love has to do with it, we have to first define what it is. And in the case of Tina Turner, she was talking about romantic relationships. Uh, But for us here today, we're talking about God. We're talking about God's love for us, our love uh, maybe for him in return, and maybe how we're supposed to love one another as well. Uh, But even as we say that we're going to talk about this it of God's love and in us and through us, uh, we also must define what we mean by love. How would we define love? Because we know that that is a word that in our culture we can use a lot of different ways and for a lot of different reasons and a lot of different contexts. Uh, For example, for me, I love my wife, I love my children, but I also love Taco Bell and I love, you know, buffalo wings, you know. And so uh, hopefully we mean something different by those two contexts. And so maybe for you, you love your favorite sports teams or, or maybe like me, you love the feeling of new socks. Yes, there's nothing better. Maybe there's some things better, but it's, it's up there. New socks. Uh, you know, you love your family. Maybe you're someone who loves road trips. Maybe you love, you know, like to fish, like as in fishing. Or maybe you love fish, like as in fish sandwiches. And maybe you love your fish, like your pet fish in an aquarium. And so all these different contexts, but they use the same word, Love And surely, then, we must mean different things when we use that same word in those different spaces. And so, throughout this message and worship series over the next several weeks, Because Love, we're going to be looking at God's definition of what love is according to the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And so, uh, if you have a Bible with you today, I'd invite you to turn uh, to 1st John chapter 4. Maybe you have something on a smart device that can do it in the East Auditorium. Welcome to those of you as well. You can find, uh, I think there's some Bibles in there that they can bring you. And those at home as well. We'll all be in 1 John chapter 4, kind of skipping around in that chapter today to really introduce this idea of what uh, the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are all about. Uh, Now, those books were written by, big shocker here, uh, a guy by the name of John. Uh, He was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Uh, he actually wrote the, uh, the Gospel of John, as in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one of four accounts of Jesus' life and death and ministry and resurrection and all of that. Uh, he wrote the book of Revelation at the end of Scripture, as well as these three, uh, they're really not books, uh, they call them, the fancy word is epistles, uh, which is the fancy word for basically letters written to churches to be circulated on what it looks like to be the church. And so John, the disciple, he was arguably the disciple out of the 12, uh, who was definitely in the inner three of like the closest to to Jesus because he got to experience a few more teachings, a few more experiences alongside uh, Peter and James. Uh, But someone made the case that he was the one who was closest to Jesus. Uh, At Jesus' death, he was the disciple that Jesus asked to take care of his own mother, Mary. Uh, And then John, in his own gospel, makes several references to John being the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, Obviously, he loved all the disciples, but John liked to point out that maybe he was like the best. I don't know. So that's who John is. And he's writing these letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, to churches to really ward against uh, what we might call false teachers and false teachings that had infiltrated the church. And so the purpose of John's letters that we're going to look at, and I invite you to read over the next several weeks, or you can read them all this week, they're pretty short uh, as we kind of jump into this series, is what you're going to see is that as he corrects false teachers and false teachings, the 
best way he sees to do this is not so much to rail against the false teaching, but to fill in and to communicate what is true, correct teaching in its place. Uh, to illustrate this, I remember when uh, we first bought our house, our first home, our only home, we've been in the last 14 years, and when you, know, you step into the, the joys of home ownership, I remember I wanted to get the whole like, lawn thing right, the grass, like, I wanted to figure that out pretty quick. And I was, I remember about this time, uh, the first couple years, I was kind of frustrated because this is a time where these weeds would start popping up. And um, so I reached out to my dad. Um, my dad spent many years as a golf course superintendent. And so part of what he would do, he'd go to these conferences basically on grass care. And so I said, who better to call than the guy who went to like these nerdy conferences on grass care? No offense, dad. Uh, but so he'd go and I, and I, so I asked him, I, I said, so dad, okay, I, I want to beat these weeds. Uh, I don't want these, this stuff in the yawn. And he said this, he said, Brian, the best defense against weeds is actually a healthy lawn. That the best way to take out the weeds is to develop a healthy lawn. That a healthy, thick, lush lawn, it will prevent those bare spots and those open spaces where weeds like to grow. And so I see that is what John is doing in these letters to the churches, that as he's trying to make sure that we as the church, you know, box out and defend against false and incorrect teaching, he's saying that the best way to do that is actually through a healthy and thick, firm foundation of what the Christian faith is all about. And so that is the approach that he takes in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. You could say he is simply going to correct false teaching by providing foundational truth. That's what he's doing. He's going to correct any false understandings and false teaching by giving us foundational truth. You could say that the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, they really almost like are a back to the basics because it is the foundations of the Christian faith. And so, as you look at the foundation of the Christian faith, and if we had to boil that down to just one word, we would see John uses the word love. That if you had to just narrow it down, if you were just forced to pick just one word of what the Christian faith and what following Jesus is all about, it would be love. It would be because love. And so today, we start that definition, we start that understanding, we start that foundation in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. Four words I'm going to extract out of that verse. This is what John says. He says this is what it's all about. He says it's because he first loved us. That the whole foundation, the whole deal, everything is built on these four words. That because he first loved us. Because love. And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time on the ellipses, both before that statement and after that statement, because there's a lot of things that lead into this idea of because love, and there's a lot of things that come out of this understanding of because love, of because he first loved us, as John sets out to, again, push back against incorrect, false, and wrong understanding by giving us foundational truth. And so, in this context, we see that the primary false teaching that John was really pushing against uh, in that day was a thing called Gnosticism. It was a heresy deemed by the early church. And what Gnosticism was, was this belief, this idea that everything in the spiritual realm was, was, uh, was good, but that everything in the physical realm 
was inherently evil. Like there was a separation between what was spiritual and physical and what was spiritual was good and what was physical was bad. Uh, and John actually addressed this heresy this way in the beginning of 1 John chapter 4. He says it this way. He says, dear friends, do not believe every spirit but he says, test the spirits, test the teachings, test the, what the, what's coming at you to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets, many false teachings have gone out into the world. And so he says, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Okay, he says, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, came Physically, it's what we celebrate at Christmas, incarnation, that he really did come. The Gnostics believe that, that Jesus maybe came uh, as an appearance, that he wasn't actually human. They, they were kind of separating the physical from the spiritual. So that Jesus Christ has actually come in the flesh, is from God, that's, that's truth. But every spirit that does not acknowledge that Jesus came from God, well, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is even now already in the world. Okay, and so this idea of Gnosticism, it really comes from the Greek word gnosis, where we get our word knowledge. They would say that if you could obtain this special uh, knowledge, this gnosis, a special knowledge of the separation between the physical and the spiritual, uh, that you could, you know, kind of arrive. But this is obviously against what Jesus came to do. He said we were supposed to come and love and be engaged in our world, not, you know, a, some sort of spiritual escape from it. And we still see this playing out in some modern-day religions, uh, things like Buddhism and some of the New Age philosophies. They have this, this understanding that if you could just empty yourself from this physical world, just separate yourself enough, well, then you can arrive. Uh, but that's not the prayer of Jesus. Your kingdom come, your will be done right here on earth, just like it is in heaven. And so it's a, a, it's a false teaching. It is a weed. Um, and we have lots of weeds. We have lots of uh, false teachings that, uh, you know, have infiltrated and can kind of get into our space because, as we, you know, we're of, uh, you know, of God but, and not of the world. We are in the world but not of it. And so it's like how do these things get in there? And one that I want to point out specifically today, uh, a false teaching, an erred understanding, is a theology which I might call or we might call today, we're going to call this false teaching good enough. We'll call it a good enough theology that has slipped into our understanding. And it's subtle. Uh, it's subtle. It's, it's this idea that, you know, yeah, I've been saved by grace, uh, but then you start to ask, okay, but how much grace is there? Like, is there, a, is, there, is there kind of this limit? Or, you know, I've accepted Jesus, but I know that you know, I prayed this prayer, I got baptized, but I, honestly, outside of that, maybe showing up here occasionally or online, there's really nothing different about my life. And so where does that leave me? Or maybe, maybe it's more nuanced. It's like, no, 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 I've, I, I've accepted Jesus. I really am trying to follow him, but there's this, there's this thing. There's this reoccurring challenge, this sin, this whatever, that keeps coming and keeps coming. And I just wonder, like, is at some point God's going to be like, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm done with you on this issue. Maybe you even doubt if you really trust God because you keep having this reoccurring issue. Uh, or maybe, you know, it's like I've accepted Jesus, but you've wondered, you know, have I accepted him enough? Or when I accepted him, did I accept him the right way? And, you know, all this stuff that gets in this idea of, like, did we do it good enough? And that's, that's just, like, 
us, like as individuals, that's like, you know, me, myself, and I. Don't even get me started on like the people I care about. Like how do I know that they're good enough for God? Like how can I really know? And it's just this, it's just this good enough cycle that gets us trapped uh, and the sense of like, okay, where do we fit into all of this? And so for you, it might play out this way. It's like, okay, I want to make sure, I want to make sure that I'm good enough. And so, uh, you know, God says if I'm going to do some good things, I've got to make sure, for example, that, well, the Bible talks about we've got to, you know, when it comes to love, uh, we've got to love others, right? That's important. So, you know, maybe if I, you know, you know, pay for someone's drink at something. I don't know. If I, if I start loving people in our community around the world, that's good. Uh, but then, you know what? Then as a part of a church, you know, I, I also got to make sure, you know, the Bible talks about, you know, we got to love one another, right? That's important. So got to get that in. And then it's like, you know, if I do a decent job maybe loving one another, it's like, oh, oh, wait a second. That one guy in the Bible, he said the most important commandment. He's like, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all your soul, your strength, your mind, your soul. So that's a lot. you got to make sure you love God. But then, maybe, I'm running out of circle here. That's okay. We'll figure it out. Then, just maybe, I'll be good enough to be loved. Maybe, just maybe, I'll be good enough to feel love. And again, it's one of those things, it's like, it creeps in, it's not like one of those head-on lies, like, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, I know I'm saved, I know God loves me unconditionally, but I think the way it leaks in, at least for me, is it's like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know God loves me, but sometimes, if I'm honest, when I feel like I'm not doing these things all that well, I just kind of wonder, like, does he really like me? Like, like, are we good God and I when these things aren't going good when they're not going well and it's and it's a weed it's it's false it's and again it's not this head-on lie it's kind of one of those like Satan style lies uh you know the word Satan name his name it literally means the deceiver and so it's one of those deceitful lies. It's one of those ones like he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden when he, when he said to Eve, he said, did, he said, did God really say, that was his first words to Eve, he said, did God really say not to eat of the, did, did, God, did God really say that he loves you unconditionally? And so it's not a bold-faced lie because that wouldn't be very deceiving, but it's, it's just this weed. It, even, it might even be green. It might even look good. Pleasing to the eye, to use the language out of Genesis, but it's a weed. It's a weed where we might mow over it every once in a while. You know, oh, yeah, 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 God loves me unconditionally, but then the root of like, really, really, really is still there and just sprouts up time and time again. The good enough weed. Now, first, second, and third John, what he does in his letters is he, you could say, pulls that weed up by the root. He pulls it up by the root and he replaces it with what we'll call both today and throughout this series. Instead of this crazy cycle, we'll call it the because, well, we'll do it in red because red is, you know, the color of love, of course, so we're going to go ahead and do that. Uh, the because love cycle. And this is how 1 John 
describes this because love cycle. We said it in verse uh, 19 of chapter 4 in 1 John. Because he first loved us, but it starts with, it says, we love because he first loved us. That we love, we don't start with our love, that we love, it says, I'm going to get my red marker and put away the black one, because he first loved us. And so it starts with being loved by God because he first loved us is why we love. And it goes on to describe what that love looks like. In that verse, it says, we love because he first loved us. And it says in, yes, 1 John 4, 10, and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That we start to see this is how God defines his love by sending his one and only son. We just sang about it. And you might be familiar with the verse that John uses in his gospel about the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus where he says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so that's what we're going to discover. We're going to discover the love of God over this series together. And we understand that when we, you know, as John 3, 16, whoever believes in him, that this believes in him, believes in the love of God that came in Jesus, that there's this natural effect, that when we embrace this, that when we start here, that when we start with because love and because of the love of God, then out of the overflow of that, we, and we believe in this, that there's this natural effect of like, well, I love God in return. Like, of course, look what God has done for me. And so naturally, I have this, um, this gateway to be able to love God with all my soul and strength and mind and soul. And when I'm living in this, you know, reunited relationship with God, forgiven of sin because I've believed in him, uh, that there's this natural effect that, you know, for those who believe that as well in the church, then we have this, uh, this kind of natural effect that we love one another. That's where, you know, this idea that God forgives us, it's like how can we not learn to forgive one another based on how much God forgives us? That's the kind of love that we have uh, as a life of a church. And then it goes on to say, it's really cool actually in the book of Acts, it talks about how the church was doing this. And then in Acts 2.47 it says that the people of the community of believers, it said it earned favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. That when people who were outside of this community, outside of the church, got a, got, a, got a peek at how the church treated one another, how they loved one another, there was this natural draw to them and beyond that, the way in which they chose to you know, bless their community and love others outside of the church, then naturally the end result is that they too, in experiencing the love that we have from God to God in one another, loving others in our community around the world that they too can experience that they, just like us, are loved by God. And so this is what John will show us is the because love cycle. Because he first loved us, we love as well. And so, this all sounds nice. This is all, you know, really good. But in fairness, we still haven't really defined love to the extent at which 
We live in this love. We understand that it was demonstrated fully and that God sent his one and only son. But if I'm honest, I'm still not really sure how that helps me understand the difference between loving Taco Bell and my family. I'm not sure that helps me figure out the difference between loving fishing, loving eating fish, and loving my pet Nemo fish. Like it's, it's still, uh, let alone how do we define the love of God and all of that. And so back to scripture, John, 1 John, excuse me, 4.16 says it this way. This is the definition that John goes on to give in verse 16. He says this, when it comes to love, God is love. Okay, love is defined by God. God is defined by love. They are synonymous. God is love, love is God, to which you might say, that's really cool but I still don't know what to do with about the fish and the fishing and the fish. Like, I'm still not really sure what that looks like for me on a Tuesday. Like, help me out, understand. Okay, so God's word goes on in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13 to give a description, arguably the most uh, popular descriptive definition of what love is. It is the most requested verse passage to be read at every wedding. I've, I've done 20, some 30, some, I don't know how many, but... Most of them have been requested to have this because of the way it describes love. Now, it's not a wedding verse per se. It was actually written uh, to the Corinthian church because they were really kind of stinking it up at loving one another. And so Paul says, hey, this is what love really looks like. And so it's still absolutely the definition of love. And this is how he defines it. You've probably heard it. You've probably even accidentally memorized it because you've heard it so much. But this is what it is. Let's try to listen with fresh ears. This is what love is. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's also defined by what it doesn't do. It does not envy. It does not boast. Love is not proud. Love, it does not dishonor others. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs, forgives. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, if God defines and describes love in this way, and then furthermore, God's word goes on to define that love is defined by God himself. Well then, you remember, God is love. Let's read 1 Corinthians by appropriately substituting the synonymous word of love with God, the synonym of love itself, who God is as defined by God in describing what this love looks like. 1 John 4.16, God is love. Therefore, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 4, is just as true that God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God does not dishonor others. God, he is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. God, he keeps in the forgiveness of Jesus, God keeps no record of wrongs. 
God obviously does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Because God, he always protects. God always trusts. God always hopes. God always perseveres. God never fails. God never fails. God never fails. I remember the weight of this truth hitting me um, in a different way. Uh, it's, it, it was, I was at a conference, at a, like, a, like a ministry conference, not a grass conference, but a ministry conference where you go and, you know, you kind of get all these new ideas and strategies and stuff like that for, you know, how to do church and all that jazz. And I remember being at this conference. It was kind of a challenging season of life in ministry, I recall. And um, the speaker there, uh, he, he kind of, you could say he was kind of like he had made it. You know, he was kind of the guy that had made it. And like in all kinds of different spheres of life, he was actually um, uh, an NFL football player, played for the Colts for a number of years. Then at the end of his career, uh, the Panthers, his name's Pastor Derwin Gray. But then after his football career, uh, he went into vocational ministry and he started a church in South Carolina. Uh, and, and that was a growing church. And now here we are at the conference. And he's, you know, anytime you're at a conference with a bunch of people that do what you do, and there's like hundreds of you sitting on this side and there's one person up there, you know, he's kind of the guy. And so it's like, okay, this guy, he's going to have some great ideas, some great strategies for ministry. Okay, I came all this way. You know, we're going we're gonna to figure this out. And Pastor Derwin Gray in that session, he said something that honestly I had heard a hundred times before. But for whatever reason, by the power of the Holy Spirit on that particular day and what God was wanting to speak through him, I had, is really in the words of Jesus, I had, you could say, ears to hear in a different way that day. Um, but what he shared was just honestly just this simple, profound truth that God loves you. He said, he said, God delights in you, uh, you know, like he likes you, uh, because he created you uh, and because you are his child. And then what got me really was the question that followed these truth statements. He just asked a simple question after sharing that. He said, and is that really enough for you? That doesn't sound like much of a quote to put on a screen. Is that really enough for you? But let me tell you, it is everything. It is everything because what that truth means and what that means if that is enough for you means that the successes and the failures, the highs and the lows will never be the source that you look to to be enough for you because this alone really is enough for you. That Psalm 82.6, that you are a son, you are a daughter, that you are a child of the Most High, it says. Is that really enough? I remember coming back from that conference uh, to our staff meeting the week following. Uh, our staff was much smaller than maybe like eight people or so around a little table. And uh, I remember them asking, okay, so, you know, what was your big takeaway from the conference? And I looked at them, I said, God loves me. I'm a child of God. And that's enough. And even a bunch of pastors and church staff people didn't have a clue what to do with that. You know, from Ralphie, even for Ralphie from the Christmas story, they looked at me as if I had lobsters crawling out of my ears. Like, they were just like, 
Okay, uh, so yeah, Brian, uh, we sent you away to conference. What about, like, did you get any things on how, like, as a church, we might be able to love God and love one another and love others? And you're know, like, what are we gonna, what are we gonna do? Um, but I'm reminded of what 1 Corinthians 13 says before that descriptive definition of what love is. It says before all that, it reminds us that before you do anything, or in fact, you could do all this, but it says in 1 Corinthians that if you do not have love, then all of this, it says, is a resounding gong, a clanging symbol, end quote. That all these things that we can do, that without this, this, it's just noise. It's just noise if we miss this. And so maybe for you today, you know, you've heard this, you know this, but maybe today the Spirit of God is giving you ears to ear, uh, eyes to see. That before we get to all this, that you don't need to hear how you need to do this better or that better. Or this but you, just need to, you just need to start at the start because love. That God is love. That love never fails, which means God never fails. And because love, because you are a son, you are a daughter, you are a child of the Most High, you are a child of God, that you would hear today simply, that really is enough. And so, that's our application, not to go do something, but just to know, just to know that this really is enough. And so let's give thanks for that reality together. By the power of your Holy Spirit, may we, Lord, have the gift, the grace of ears to hear and eyes to see the simple, profound, but everything based in truth that you love us, you never fail us, and that you are enough, whatever comes our way. And so may, in these next few moments, from the ears to hear, the eyes to see, the hearts to receive, out of the overflow of that, we want to step into the next era. We want to express our love and our thankfulness for you, for the love that you first showed us, as we give thanks that we are children of God, all because, not that we loved, but that you first loved us. May it be. 